Well, good morning. Um, I hope you all enjoyed your morning sleigh ride. And, uh, you know, if you have, haven't been uh, up on your, you know, New Year's exercise resolutions, you know, that the, you know, few hundred pounds of snow you probably lifted this morning were, was the Lord's way of helping you with that. Wanted also to uh, just express thanks and um, uh, our appreciation to our deacons. You know, we often kind of walk on shoveled walks and pathways up to the door and forget there are guys that are up early to do that. Uh, when I arrived here at about a little after six uh, to kind of check the conditions, uh, one of our deacons was already here getting the snowblowers out, and so I uh, just wanted to express our gratitude uh, to the deacons for all that they do uh, to enable us to worship and fellowship and to preach the Word of God. Also wanted to welcome those of you who are joining us by live stream, and uh, we're so grateful that uh, the Lord has given uh, us this means to be able to worship together even uh, when roads, and uh, I'm sure some blocked roads for some of you, um, it doesn't enable us to attend in person. We're going to open God's Word, and we're going to be in Isaiah 49, uh, but a couple other things just to mention as you're turning there. I want to ask you to be praying uh, for my upcoming ministry trip to Kansas. I'll be leaving towards the end of this coming week, and I'll be speaking at two different conferences that are back-to-back, so I'll be speaking about ten times in four days. And uh, during our years on the mission field, I used to do kind of intensives like that pretty regularly, but it's been a few years, and I'm a few years older, so I would appreciate uh, prayer for... Uh, vocal cord endurance and that the Lord would would bless the time there. I'm going to be bringing a series of messages from Isaiah uh, to the folks in there. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, but would appreciate prayer. So next Sunday, Austin Dosh is going to be preaching. That's going to be an amazing blessing. So look forward to that. He's also going to be teaching my Wednesday evening class on biblical interpretation. And since that's in addition to his seminary studies and his other regular duties at the church, please be in prayer for him as he takes on a a significant extra load. And I also wanted to mention then January 28th, which is going to be a really special Sunday. It's going to be the installation service uh, for Pastor David as well as uh, a baptism Sunday. And so Uh, It's a really uh, blessed and important uh, date for us as well. We're going to have a guest speaker that Sunday. His name is Dr. Michael Grisanti. He's a highly respected Old Testament scholar from the Master's Seminary, and I'm looking forward to him coming and and, uh, sharing the Word of God with us. And and then he's going to be here also not just Sunday morning, but Sunday evening. Sunday evening, he's going to be speaking on the topic of biblical archaeology. So make sure that you are here morning and evening on the 28th. Well, we're in Isaiah 49, and I kind of want to begin by, again, just reminding you kind of where we're at in the flow of the book. We're in that third major part of the book, which extends from chapter 36 all the way to the end, and that third section focuses on the theme of salvation by grace. And as we've been studying through now this third section, we've covered a few kind of Uh, subsections within that. The first was the historical excursus in chapters 36 through 39. We read about the story of Hezekiah, how he was fearful and flawed and yet faithful, and we learned lessons from his example. Then last week, we finished our study of chapters 40 through 48, which I entitled, Share Comfort, because the Messiah will bring peace. And so today, we're beginning the next subsection, which extends from chapters 49 through chapter 57, and I've entitled this next section, Say Tenderly, the Messiah Will Make Atonement. And again, those section titles were gleaned from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 2, which really introduced the themes for the rest of the book. So we're in that section from 49 through 57, in which The prophets were to say kindly or tenderly or speak to the heart of the people to let them know that the Messiah will make atonement for their sins. Now, as we look at chapter 49 in particular, I want you to notice that it has a sharp contrast in the middle, which really divides it into two distinct passages. Look at chapter 49, verses 13 through 16. It says, Shout for joy, O heavens, And rejoice, O earth. 
Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So in verse 13, the Lord speaks words of hope, but in verse 14, the people speak words of doubt. And so this contrast between the words of hope spoken by the Lord in verse 13 and then the words of doubt spoken by the people in verse 14 formed this contrast which divides the chapter into two major sections. In fact, verse 14 begins with a contrastive. Here's what God has said, but the people responded with doubt. So based on the transition between the Lord's words of hope and the people's response of doubt, our overall outline of the, chap, uh, of the chapter, chapter 49, is that verses 1 through 13 uh, declare that the Messiah's deliverance is now being announced, and then in verses 14 through 26, mankind's doubts are assuaged. So verses 1 through 13, Messiah's deliverance is announced, and verses 14 through 26, mankind's doubts are assuaged by God. So let's look at that first section in verses 1 through 13. Messiah's deliverance is announced. In these 13 verses, there are 12 informative messianic prophecies, 12 things stated about the Messiah and the hope that he is going to bring. And we're just going to kind of fly through these 12 distinct messianic prophecies there in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. The first is in verse 1, and this prophecy is that the Messiah's worldwide influence will come from divine calling, not human charisma. Look at verse 1. It says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. Now, I'll pause just for a second to note the clear sanctity of human life implications of this. This is the Messiah speaking, and he is speaking of his life and his calling while yet in the womb, and that the Lord even named him while yet in the womb. So lest anyone doubt that the life in the womb is human life, the Messiah, the incarnate Christ, says that, the Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother, he named me. But notice that the Messiah's worldwide influence, right? He's gonna have influence even on the distant islands, even on the peoples from afar. That influence is gonna come from his divine calling, not from human charisma. If you flip over to chapter 53, verse two, this is discussed further it says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The Messiah's influence isn't gonna come from some sort of human power of, of a charismatic personality or of some special giftedness or some special physical appearance or anything like that. It's going to come from his divine calling by God the Father. Secondly, in verse two, it is prophesied that the Messiah's powerful preaching will include things that God had not formerly revealed. Look at verse two, it says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So this is referring to the power of Messiah's preaching. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his 
quiver. So this verse speaks of the power that the Messiah's preaching will have, but says that, that for now, it's like a sword concealed in the hand. It's like a, a very powerful arrow that's for now hidden in the quiver of the Lord, only ready to be launched at the appointed time, only ready to be unsheathed at the appointed time. So Messiah's powerful preaching will include things that God had not formally revealed. And we see this played out in Matthew chapter 5, where six times Jesus says, you have heard it said, referring to Old Testament revelation, and then he says, but I say to you, and then he reveals to them additional revelation from God, additional moral truths, additional spiritual truths not formally revealed. Third, in verse three, we see the prophecy that the Messiah will represent Israel in order to restore the Shekinah glory of God. Look at verse three. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Now this is really important because when we look at the book of Ezekiel, we see this very tragic scene as the Lord reveals it to Ezekiel, that the Shekinah glory which was in the Holy of Holies because of the people's sin, because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, because of their refusal to repent, the Shekinah glory of God departs the temple pauses at the eastern gate, then goes to the Mount of Olives and pauses there as the Lord continues to implore his people to repent. When they do not repent, the Shekinah glory vanishes away to heaven and is not seen again on the earth until when? Until the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 17. And that prefigured then the transfiguration prefigures what will happen at the second coming when Christ will return to the Mount of Olives exactly where the Shekinah glory departed from. He will enter into Jerusalem through the eastern gate exactly the gate through which the Shekinah glory departed and he will enter the, the temple and once again the Shekinah glory of God will be seen and present and visible on the earth. So the father says to the son, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Fourth prophecy is in verse four. The Messiah will share the struggles of life in this cursed world, but will never sin. Look at verse four. The Messiah now is speaking, but I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, Surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. The Messiah is going to share the struggles of this life but will never sin. And I'm going to pause on this one. I'm going to spend more time on this one than any of the rest for a very simple reason. This one really resonated with me personally. So, you know, one of the things about being a preacher is sometimes things that really resonate with you, you get to kind of focus on. I hope it will be as helpful to you as it has been for me this week. The words of verse 4 really resonate with me. Because when I'm discouraged, the thoughts that go through my mind sound a lot like the beginning of verse 4. At the beginning of verse 4, we see these words, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. One of the kind of, you know, common and, and continual struggles for pastors, for missionaries, for ministry leaders, and frankly for anyone who invests large amounts of time and energy into ministering to people is that you often feel like there is no connection between effort and results. That's just not how ministry works. People, you know, people aren't like, you know, I, 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 you know, in high school and college, I worked for a framing crew, right? It's like we showed up in the morning and there weren't any walls there. We worked hard and by the end of the evening, there were walls. Effort, result. Effort, visible results. You know, and, uh, you know, if you take a sledgehammer, the harder you hit something, the more it breaks, you know? And the more you pound a nail when you demo something and then you put fresh new studs in its place and you 
put that paint on, you see immediate visible results, something that was, was broken down and, and, and in need of repair now is beautiful and functional. But in ministry, that's not how it is. It often feels like there's no connection between effort and results. And what happens is sometimes you pour yourself into ministry and the results are minimal. But then other times, you do the minimum to get by. And the results are better than when you poured yourself into it. And you're thinking, what? You know, like one week you just pour yourself into it and no results. Other week you kind of skate by and incredible results. And so you see a disconnect between effort and output. Now, of course, I know theologically that the Lord is sovereign. He does his work with or without me. If I do the minimum, which I shouldn't, that's not going to stop the Lord from accomplishing his purposes. And if I put in maximum effort, it's not like me putting in maximum effort somehow forces God's hand. God, not me, is the Lord of the harvest. My job is to simply be faithful. But sometimes I struggle not to be discouraged by the apparent disconnect between my efforts and the lack of visible and quantifiable results. I was a missionary and I've known lots of missionaries. If you meet a discouraged missionary, it's probably because of this. They have labored, they have even suffered, they have given up so much, and they look around and it seems like there's nothing to show for it. And so they find themselves thinking that all their effort has been in vain. Can you relate to that struggle? It's something that is very common to those who are in vocational ministry, but it extends to anyone who really invests into people, into their families, into their neighbors, into their coworkers. Oftentimes, effort and result don't seem to be connected. Do you ever feel like you're working, trying, and striving all for nothing? Since that's something that I struggle with on a fairly regular basis, it absolutely floored me when I'm reading Isaiah 49, verse 4, and I realize that these words are prophetically revealing the internal thoughts and feelings of Jesus the Messiah. In verse 4, it is the servant of Yahweh. It is the Messiah who is speaking. And the text records that he said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. So this caused me to stop. What is the text saying? And the conclusion is that Jesus knows how I feel so often. He too has experienced the feeling of frustration and futility which is common to man in this fallen world. What the text says, it's exactly what the text says, is that Jesus felt and expressed this experience of frustration and futility. I want you to think about it for a moment. We know that Jesus experienced years of hard manual labor working as a carpenter in the ancient world. And the reason, I think one of the reasons we don't hear much about the first 30 years of his life was that he was working so hard and so much to help support his poverty-stricken family. We know his family was poor because when they take him to the temple at age 12, they offer the sacrifice that was the exception made for the exceptionally poor, the poor and destitute. So we know that at age 12, Jesus lived in a family which was exceptionally poor, even by the standards of a nation living under Roman occupation. So he spent the first three decades of his life working and working and working to help support his poverty-stricken family. Question is, did all that hard work pay off? Jesus the carpenter, all that hard work, did it pay off? Was he able to lift his family out of poverty? And I think the answer of Scripture clearly is no. Matthew 8, 20, during his ministry, Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
even as he's dying, he has to ask his best friend John to take care of his aging mother and to let her live in his house. This is a clear indication that the family was still in poverty. So I think he experienced that feeling of futility that you work and work and work and you're not able to get ahead. You say, well, well, yeah, but Jesus came for ministry, for ministry. Well, his ministry, wasn't his ministry an astounding success? Well, obviously, it was an astounding success. Here we are. But I want you to think about what he was seeing and experiencing in his incarnation. Even though Jesus labored day and night with little rest, pouring himself out for the people, by the end of his earthly ministry, the crowds had dwindled away, only a few followers remained. His disciples, his best friends, ran away and abandoned him in the garden when he was being arrested. Then, when he's taken to the trial, Peter, who's following at a distance, denies even knowing him. And then the crowds in Jerusalem, the city which is the capital of the Messianic king, those crowds said they would rather have a violent criminal released into their society than to have Jesus with them anymore. And so they shouted for him to be crucified. Listen again to Isaiah 53, how the Messiah is described. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This was the visible result of his ministry. So Jesus, both from his years as a carpenter in the economically depressed town of Nazareth, he definitely had to know what it felt like to work hard and not be able to get ahead financially. And as the suffering Savior, he knows what it feels like to labor hard in ministry and to experience only apathy, rejection, hatred, and persecution in return. All of that effort and what were the results. And so the prophecy records the Messiah saying in Isaiah 49, 4, but I have said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now, these, this phrase contains two really key words, the words toil and the words vanity. And when you hear the words toil and vanity, it should take your mind back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Let me just read it to you. This is when the curse is pronounced on Adam. To Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what we call the futility of the curse, that after the curse now you're going to work with the sweat of your brow, and you're going to work and work and work, and you're only going to get weeds only weeds and you're going to look there and you're going to think back of all that work that you put into it and you're looking at this shriveled little weed and you're like why it wasn't worth it you're going to say to yourself as all humans have I have toiled in vain I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity you see this phrase from Isaiah 49 tells us that the Messiah was going to experience the full effects of the curse life in this fallen world. 
And Galatians, the book of Galatians in the New Testament tells us that Jesus was born under the law and became a curse for us so that he could free us from the curse of the law. It says he was born of a woman, born under the law. And and then in, in the next chapter it says that he became a curse for us so that we could be redeemed from the curse of the law. In order to save us, Jesus lived in this fallen world and experienced the full force of the curse, including the frustration of physical labor, which produces only thorns and thistles, as well as the frustration of ministry with people not responding. Flip over to the book of Hebrews and hear the descriptions of this as it is given to the Hebrew people in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one, verse 10. Sorry, chapter two, verse 10. Says this about Christ. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, right? He's the, he is, he's the owner of all creation. Imagine being the owner of all creation. Over and over again in the New Testament it says, everything belongs to him. You're the owner of all creation, and you're sitting there, you're 19-year-old Jesus, and you're carrying the wood or hauling the stones. The sweat is streaming down your face, and I'm sure like every contractor who's ever lived in the world, sometimes he didn't get paid. It says, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He was perfected through sufferings. Means that his absolute righteousness was demonstrated through his endurance of suffering and doing that without sin. So then in chapter two, verse 14, it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partake of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Then flip over to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These are precious truths. Just like these passages from Hebrews, Isaiah 49 verse 4 reminds me that my Savior understands my struggles and he understands yours. He understands what it is like to live in a world in which your labor produces only thorns and thistles, in which you feel like all that you have done has all been in vain. He understands that struggle. But I have said, says the Messiah, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. But I want to point out something else. Verse 4 doesn't just remind me that Jesus understands my struggle. It tells me how he overcame it. And how he overcame it without sinning. See, for me, this sense of futility often goes, this is, you know, I'm experiencing the sufferings of the cursed world or the futility of the cursed world 
And I so often go to a sinful reaction. Christ experienced the same sufferings, yet without sin. So how did he overcome it? How did he overcome it without sinning? When we look to his example, we'll learn how we can overcome it as well. Look again at verse four. He says, but I have said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, there's the key word, yet, surely the justice due to me is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. You see, Jesus knew that the visible and the earthly results are not all the results there is. He understood that justice is with the Lord, and it will come in his good timing. He understood also that his Father would honor him with a glorious, eternal reward. It's described as the inheritance of the Son that the Father had prepared for him. What carried Jesus through watching a huge crowd which had gathered to hear him preach? And then when he preaches the truth, they're like, oh, who can listen to this? And they literally turn and walk away. Imagine he preaches a sermon and watches thousands of people turn their backs on him and leave. Imagine how he felt at the garden when his friends fell asleep on him in the moment of of his great agony. Imagine how he felt as the crowds were shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas, we want this murderer instead of him, and kill him, crucify him. How did he endure that sense that all of his effort had all been in vain? It was because he knew that justice is with the Father and his reward is with the Father as well. Go back to the book of Hebrews one last time to Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, verse one, Hebrews 12, one, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right, so how do you run with endurance? You know, you're, you're chugging along in life, you're getting weary, you, man, things are, you know, I mean, you just wanna quit. How do you keep running the race with endurance? Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How did Jesus endure all of the rejection and the persecution and the torture and the killing on the cross? How did he get through all of that? It says there was joy that he kept set in front of him. There was something that was joyous that was beyond the cross and that was the salvation of souls, this great eternal inheritance of a people that he will save. In other words, the way to overcome frustration and a sense of futility in your life is to remember that you are not laboring for earthly results, you're laboring for heavenly reward. I had a, uh, an international friend who uh, at one point was in a good church but has kind of got into some church that, that has some false teaching and you know, it's kind of this common false teaching that it's like, hey, God wants you to be you know, healthy and wealthy and successful. And he, he, he's a business guy, and so he kind of got into that. Yeah, God wants my business to be successful, right? And so, you know, at Christmas time, he, he po- you know, kind of around the new year, he posts this little meme that shows this real shabby little house, and it, and it says, this isn't God's will for you, and it shows this big palace. This is God's will for you. And I said, I sent him a verse and Galatians says it has been given to you God's given you a gift that's what it says it has been granted to you and what does the verse say it has been granted to you not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake that's the gift God has has given to many 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 Christians is the gift of earning eternal reward through sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what the martyrs, that is the martyr's crown. 
And so the way to overcome frustration, a sense of futility, things not going right, the world turning against you, is to remember that you're not laboring for earthly results, but heavenly reward. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which is interestingly is the favorite verse both of Katie's father and my father, says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let me read it again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And lest you think that this isn't a a topic that the Lord knows we need, it's one of the last things that's ever recorded from the lips of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. He says, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. He says, I'm coming back, and I'm bringing my reward with me. So what are you living for? Are you living for visible earthly success, quick results, things you can touch and see and feel, or are you living for the eternal reward that Christ is bringing when he comes? Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that is what the Messiah is teaching us in this prophetic revelation of his own overcoming of the sufferings of this cursed world. I have said, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, there's one last thing from verse four I wanna point out, and that is the phrase, the justice due me. The justice due me. That should also ring a bell because that exact same phrase was used back in chapter 40, verse 27. So flip back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Which says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? So notice the contrast, that phrase, the justice due me. It's used twice, here in chapter 40, verse 27, and then again in chapter 49, verse 4. And in chapter 40, verse 27, the people are saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Whereas in chapter 49, verse 4, the Messiah says, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord. There's a stark contrast here between the people who griped that the justice due to them escapes the notice of God and Jesus who proclaims that surely, absolutely certainly, the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. This is a contrast. There was a test of faith that Israel and you and I and everyone else has failed, but it's a test that Jesus passed with flying colors. How will we react to the reality of the curse. We react by saying, justice has escaped the notice of God. You know, it's all vanity, vanity of vanities like, like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, right? You know, everything is meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's all vanity, a chasing after the wind. That's the human reaction. Messiah's reaction was to say, yes, that is the experience of the curse, but I know that justice is with God. My reward is with him, and for the joy set before me, I will endure the cross to save sinners. Jesus passed the test that we so often fail. Interestingly, in chapter 40, verse 27, let me go on and read the exhortation that comes after the people fail this test. Chapter 40, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. 
They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You know, when I preached on Isaiah 40, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not sure I really understand what it means by saying that those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. I remember, you know, I don't know if you remember in that message, I didn't really say much about that. I wasn't sure, what, what does this mean? Well, I think Isaiah 49 verse four explains it. What does it mean to wait on the Lord so that you gain new strength? It is to look the futility and toil and frustrations of this fallen, cursed world right in the eye, acknowledge them, and then say, as Christ did, surely the justice due to me is in the hands of the Father, and he will reward in due time. It's to wait upon the Lord means to to wait for the coming of the heavenly reward to look past the trials and the sufferings and the frustrations of this life to the reward that God will give for faithful service as you labor for his namesake and for his glory. Those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with things like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Well, let's get back to our study of those messianic prophecies. Um, supposed to cover 12. We're on number five, so we'll move quickly. Fifth prophecy in Isaiah 49 is that the Messiah's initial mission will be focused on bringing Israel to repentance and bringing them back to the Father. Look at verse five. It says, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. The Messiah's initial mission is to bring Israel to repentance and bring them back to the Father. We see Jesus state this very directly in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where did Christ minister and serve? In Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That was his initial mission. In fact, when he first sent out his disciples, he says, don't go to the Gentiles. He says, go only to the lost sheep of Israel because God had sent him on a mission to bring back his wandering people. And even in the book of Romans, it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It says to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. So the Messiah's initial mission prophesied here seven centuries beforehand would be to bring Israel to repentance and to bring them back to the Father. That's the fifth prophecy. Now look at the sixth. The Messiah's ultimate mission will be to shine the light of salvation to the very ends of the earth. The initial mission, to bring Israel back to the Father. The ultimate mission, to shine the light of salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at verse six. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And of course, in Acts 1.8, Christ commissions his body, the church, to go to the ends of the earth to be witnesses of his gospel. And Revelation 7 tells us that mission will be successful because people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all over the earth are brought into salvation and worship the Lord. Well, the seventh prophecy here is that the Messiah will be despised and rejected at the beginning but exalted and worshipped in the end. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So at the beginning of verse 7, He's despised, he's abhorred by the nation, 
He is in a servant position to human rulers. But then, in the end, kings are going to see and arise. They will bow down to the Messiah. He will be despised and rejected at the beginning, but exalted and worshipped in the end. And we see this proclaimed by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, as well as in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Eighth prophecy is in verse 8. The Messiah will be given to the people as a new covenant between God and man. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. He will be given to the people as a new covenant between God and man. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, in the instructions on communion given, remember what's said when, when we partake of the cup? Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right? And as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. He is going to be given to the people as a new covenant between God and man. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Prophecy number nine, the Messiah will set the captives free, he will seek the lost, and he will shepherd the flock of God. Verse nine, he will say to those who are bound, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all the bare heights. He's going to set captives free. He's going to seek the lost. He's going to shepherd the flock of God. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd, right? He's going to lead them in and out to pasture. Prophecy number 10, in verse 10, the Messiah will be compassionate, will lead the flock to the never-ending source of life. Verse 10, they, that is the flock, will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Right? This is very reminiscent of Psalm 23. As well as what Jesus says in John 4, and then again in John 7 when he says, I am the water of life. Right? He who drinks of me will never thirst again. Prophecy number 11. The Messiah will gather his people from all over the world into his kingdom. Verses 11 and 12. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar and lo, these will come from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinem. Messiah is going to gather his people from all over the world into his kingdom. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, this idea is stated very carefully. He's talking about how the Messiah is going to come, how the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, calf and the fatling will dwell together, the little boy will lead them. Right? It says in verse 9, they, have not, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then in, in chapter 11, verse 10, it says, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. The Messiah is going to gather his people from all over the world into his millennial kingdom. Then in verse 12, or verse 13, I'm sorry, we see the 12th prophecy, which is that the Messiah will bring joy to all creation because of the comfort and compassion he will bring. Look at the conclusion of this Messianic prophecy in verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Praise the Lord. The Messiah will bring joy to all creation because of the comfort and the compassion he will bring. I want to close by reading to you Psalm 96, which describes the rejoicing of all creation. Psalm 96, just a beautiful psalm to end today on. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. 
Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The Messiah's deliverance is announced. And then when we meet again in a few weeks, we'll talk about how mankind's doubts are assuaged. They're going to express their doubts. No, no, no. We think God has forgotten us. He's abandoned us. And God says, The most loyal love on earth is the love of a nursing mother. But even that fails sometimes. Sanctity of Life Sunday reminds us that it fails sometimes. But even the most loyal love, God says, my love is more loyal than that. In fact, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Rejoice. Lord, as we look at these prophecies, Lord, even in a single chapter, how they lay out so many things about the life and ministry and the gospel of Christ. Lord, our hearts break for those who are still in darkness, those who don't know that joy, those who are still saying, God has forsaken me, he's abandoned me. Lord, may they know that your love is more loyal even than that of a mother and that you have inscribed your people on the palms of your hands an unfailing eternal love. May we rest in your love. May we rejoice in your love. May we declare your love to the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.